Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. Today we're talking about Germany's general election, coming this Sunday. It's an election that's expected to be more of the same for Germany, with Angela Merkel set to begin her fourth term as Chancellor. It hasn't been completely plain sailing though, and the far-right party, Alternative for Deutschland, are expected to take seats in the next parliament. It would be the first time a far-right party has sat in the German parliament since the Nazis. So to talk about what lies beneath this German election campaign and what lies ahead is Heather Connolly, the head of our Europe program, as well as her deputy, Jeff Rathke. It's a campaign of uh, keeping the German voters very asleep. Uh, and in some ways, uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, Muti, or mother, has been rocking uh, rocking the German voters, lulling them to sleep with, you know, things are good. Things are stable. The world looks very unstable, but things are very good in Germany. So this has been a very quiet, a very stable campaign. Uh, The opinion polls really haven't moved that much over the last several months. And I think that calm, though, belies uh, a a turbulence underneath the the surface. Jeff? I I agree with that. What's, What's striking is, with everything happening in Europe, what hasn't been discussed in this election campaign been almost no talk about Russia and how to deal with Russia. Um, Almost no talk about Brexit. Um, Very little uh, to be said about the future of the German economy. All these major issues um, have really been um, under-reported and under-analyzed. And instead, there's been a whole lot more focus on how's the AFD going to do, the alternative for Germany, the far-right party that's going to enter parliament for the first time ever. And so there's been a lot more focus on that um, that numbers game, that horse race, rather than on the issues that are going to confront Germans after this election's over. Well, it's kind of the easier story, isn't it? I do want to get into Alternative for Deutschland, but I suppose it's, you know, that campaign then is a symptom of things are going well for Germany. There are a lot of things that the current government can point to and say, you know, keep us in. Absolutely. Historically low unemployment. Uh, the German economy, as well as the Eurozone economy, has actually been doing, on a quarterly basis, better than the American economy. In some ways, it's, it's finally, after such a delay in recovery after the 2008 global recession, it's getting there. Um, it, clearly, two years ago, when the uh, migration wave was an incredibly turbulent moment for, for Germany and German politics and German society, that has subsided. I mean, the government's been working very hard to work on that integration. It, as I said, it just it feels as if, to Jeff's point, there are so many major issues to talk about. Um, and there's so much turmoil around Germany. This, this election has just been an absolute uh, void of really talking about Germany's future. Um, it's just, well, let's get past this election and then we'll deal with it. And the implicit message of that from Merkel is, you trust me, I'm competent, I'm not going to mess things up, and with all of this turbulence around us, wouldn't you rather have me with my hand uh, on the wheel? Yeah, I was looking at the, the Pew reports of uh, trust in international leaders. Merkel, when you compare her to any big leader around the world, is the most trusted. And in Germany, I think it was 80% had trust in her to do the right thing, which is huge, which is kind of unprecedented too. She's a perfect, in some ways, she's just a great mirror of German society. She does, she mirrors them. Um, I think you also, there's something about durability. Um, she's the longest serving, uh, right now, Ger- uh, European leader, uh, as she 
we believe, enters her uh, fourth term. Uh, so there is that longevity, stability, steady pair of hands on the wheel. Um, they like her, and and you can tell that's sort of it's a mutual a mutual discussion. What what do you expect then to see then? I mean, if it is what people are saying that it would be uh, her last term as chancellor, do we see a more unbound Merkel, similar to how you'd see in a president's second term? Um, and how does that then impact, say, relations uh, with other states, especially obviously the U.S.? In general, leaders do not change when in, when they're in their sixth or seventh decade. So I don't think we're going to see a different Merkel this time around. Some things will depend on the coalition she puts together. But um, if she wins, I, I think she's going to continue that kind of pragmatic approach, which leaves open the possibility of big changes in policy, but she usually approaches them um, carefully and steadily. I think the other thing that she will keep in mind, even if she does start to plan her own transition to a successor within the Christian Democratic Union, that she wants to put them in, leave them in a position to win another election. So the idea of a sort of second-term president uh, being being unleashed and able to pursue bold initiatives doesn't really apply in a parliamentary context in Germany. And we talked about this previously, but I think it's worth bringing up is the rise of the far right, this the AFD. Could you tell us about what's caused that? Is it as alarming as as it looks? I mean, in a like you said, in a parliamentary system, these these people won't be in power. They will be in parliament, but it's not like they'll be making any big decisions. Right. There, there are certainly some things we need to be very concerned about uh, with the alternative for Deutschland. Again, just a uh, point to, to remember, this party was created out of the European economic crisis. It was a party of German professors and economists that were very upset uh, at you know a German transfer of wealth to less, uh, how we say, spendthrifty uh, Southern European countries. It then morphed into an anti-immigrant party um, and now has had various leadership challenges. So it, it began as an anti-Euro, transformed into an anti-immigrant uh, party. Over the last several years of state elections, the Alternative for Deutschland party is represented in 13 out of the 16 German Lunders states. Um, and what we believe right now, polling, and, and you know, the, we're a little concerned that the polling may be a little below what, what we're saying because when polling uh, individuals ask, you know, are you going to support Alternative for Deutschland? You know, sometimes you don't want to tell that maybe or you would, you're a little uh, circumspect. It may be higher. Um, so they could get 12 percent, maybe even higher. We don't know. But um, they uh, could be the third largest party in the Bundestag after this election. Every, every party has said that they would not form a coalition with that party, so it, it's extremely unlikely uh, that they would be in government. But as uh, if they get 12% of the vote, they could get 70 to 80 seats. They receive now funding. Um, they are obviously legitimized uh, as a party in uh, the federal parliament. And they can be very disruptive to uh, the work of the Bundestag, which is very important to German policymaking and to process. So 
This is a big deal. The other side of that equation, so the alternative for Deutschland is the far right. You also have uh, Die Linke, the, the far left, the left party, which right now is polling between 9 and 10 percent. So as I like to tell people, we could potentially see where a far left and a far right party combined, the, the polar ends of the political spectrum, could exceed 20 to 23 percent of the German vote. And I think that speaks to uh, a political center uh, that is starting to shrink a little bit. And I think we have to be cognizant of that. I, I just add a couple of things to that. One is uh, the question of where they'll come out in the uh, compared to the polls is an interesting one because when the AFD first made its big splash, they were underrepresented in the polls. This year, there have been three state elections in Germany. And in each of those, the polls have been basically spot on with the AFD's support. So in a federal election, things could be different. Uh, also, there's reportedly a high number of people who say they haven't decided yet, and those could break one way or another. Yeah, 50%, um, something but, like that's very uh, high. So, so there is still some uncertainty uh, there. The other thing is that we have, we have to remember that in a European context, Germany has been a standout because there has not been a far-right party represented in parliament um, until this upcoming uh, election. If you look at the Netherlands, if you look at Austria, Sweden, of course, we've just lived through the French presidential election and Marine Le Pen um, getting a significant percentage of the vote. So in, in a way, this is Germany um, kind of uh, reverting to the norm for Europe uh, rather than actually standing out. And and if you look at the AFD's support numbers, you know, if they get 12%, even if they get you know, a little more than that, um, they're not going to be larger than in surrounding countries. But of course, with Germany's history, this has a different kind of significance. Heather, you're a co-author of the Kremlin Playbook, which is a look at how Russia has interfered and kind of meddled in Central and Eastern European democracies. Have you seen anything in the German elections that would kind of be alarming to you. It doesn't seem that way. So um, I, I think German officials are still holding their breath until Sunday. Uh, so, but it looks like there's a combination of factors. Uh, there certainly was evidence of, of, of uh, the Kremlin planning to use its instruments. The uh, the Christian Dem Democratic Union, the Merkel's party, was hacked. Uh, in 2015, as was the Bundestag. Uh, so I think that there were opportunities there. Uh, we had seen where a story of fake news, it's it's the infamous Lisa story, where um, a, a completely fictional story of a 13-year-old, an ethnic Russian girl living in Germany, was uh, raped by a migrant. Uh, totally false, but it played out, and it actually caused a demonstration of several hundred people in Berlin based on that false report, that false story. Um, so uh, understanding what had happened in the in the United States for our presidential election, what was going on in the French presidential election, the German government had been very forthright and very public about warning the German people that this could happen, being on alert for it. Um, and so there was a there was a public education and awareness and an attentiveness that the government had across the board. I think from the the the, the Kremlin standpoint, in some ways their methodology has had a lot of exposure the last nine to twelve months. Uh, and it, it does have a, a boomerang effect uh, coming back and and harming I think the Russian objectives, which is to try to get a more accommodative government uh, in, the in that election. So I think there has been uh, less Russian interference than what had been feared six, 12 months ago. 
but I think we should appreciate that they had acquired the tools and could certainly have uh, have done that. But Russia really has not been that much of a, an issue within this election. There was a little, uh, uh, certainly some buzz around the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder uh, becoming a board member on Rosneft. Uh, that caused some uh, ongoing conversation. The leader of the liberals, the Free Democratic Party, Christian Linder, had made a suggestion that uh, perhaps, you know, Crimea, we just need to get over this and just recognize that Crimea is never coming, going back to Ukraine. That caused a little fluffle, but uh, really it has not, thankfully, uh, really has not caused too many problems. But wait till Sunday is over, then I'll say we're, we're out, of the, out of the woods. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's certainly right with regard to the you know the hacking and and uh, the weaponization, if you want to call it, of of stolen information. You have had RT weighing in in ways that uh, amplify themes that the AFD has been um, hitting on. So you know that if uh, if you start from the uh, uh, assumption, which I do, that you know RT reflects uh, you know official Russian desires um, and and backing, then you've got to take that into consideration. That could have an effect on the significant Russian-speaking population in Germany, which is several million, but um, not. this is not like the uh, interference in the U.S. election campaign, in part because in Germany, the, the, the issue is not so much polarization, which is what Russia played on here, but instead, it's more of a fragmentation. You have these, um, you know, you you have a greater percentage of the vote going to smaller parties than you've ever had before in Germany, and that is going to dominate the picture of the Bundestag and make it harder for them to 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 get things done. Right, seven parties will be in the Bundestag, um, and depending on what the makeup is, this this government um, could take several months to form. We really may not have a formally formed government until December. That, that it takes a long time. It'll be complicated, potentially. Going into the U.S. component, what have you seen, I guess, in the last couple months of the relationship between uh, President Trump and Merkel that will uh, inform how this relationship will continue? Well, it, it, it has, the relationship got off to a fairly rocky start. Um, there was a, a not bad uh, meeting in in the Oval Office, although the atmospherics uh, left a little bit to be desired. But substantively, I think both sides were pleasantly surprised. It went better than than they thought. The Merkel was deeply disappointed by the NATO summit in May and the G7 summit, and that led to her statement afterwards in a speech in Bavaria to say that. The times are are gone when Germany could rely on others uh, completely, um, and that uh, that Europe needed to take more of its fate uh, needed to take its fate into its own hands. Um, that was a, a smart electoral move because it distanced her a little bit from President Trump, who's uh, deeply unpopular in Germany, while at the same time allowing her to emphasize the commitment to Europe um, and the commitment to the kind of transatlantic values. But there are a bunch of issues out there that are going to be difficult uh, between the U.S. and Germany. The economic issues, depending on how uh, President Trump's trade agenda develops. 
the Iran nuclear deal of which uh, to which Germany is a party. It was one of the the P5 plus one uh, that negotiated it, um, and uh, you know North Korea even. Uh, you know Merkel has been rather critical in the last couple of days about the stance that President Trump has taken. So there are several issues that are going to are going to cause uh, you know, potentially could cause some friction. This is such a critical relationship, the U.S.-German relationship. Uh, is the key pillar of the transatlantic relationship. And any diminishment of that uh, impacts the entire relationship. Our economic relationship, our security relationship, the number of U.S. forces that are still based in Germany. Uh, and sometimes we, we take this for granted because it's so normal and so natural. Um, the Trump administration has really shaken the foundations of this bilateral relationship, particularly on the trade, harping on deficits and tariffs, um, but obviously shaking the NATO commitment as well. So um, I just can't underscore it is so important. This relationship has been shaken, uh, but hopefully we can try to get this on firmer ground uh, because we have a, a boatload of issues that are just all around us uh, to deal with. And Germany is the key. Germany is the key to, to Russia policy. Uh, Germany is the key to helping us uh, think through, again, the future of Europe and European integration. It'll be very instrumental on Brexit, uh, again, very important to the United States. So. It's it's this one's big, and we have to pay much closer attention to it than. And, and within we have. Germany, Merkel is going to have her hands full with which with whichever party uh, or parties she forms a coalition. She's going to get a lot of uh, a lot of pressure um, that, and a lot of criticism of the United States, whether it's from the Social Democrats or from the the Greens and the FDP. Um, so. Uh, you know, she'll be pulled in a few different directions. What's the practical effect of that if Germany, or Merkel, as you say, would be uh, encouraged to kind of pull away from the United States? What's the effect of that? Well, I mean, again, if you look at the the transatlantic relationship, I always tell when I do a lot of public speaking. Um, when Europe is strong, America is strong. When Europe is weak, America is weak. Uh, we together this relationship. Uh, when one is not doing well, the other one doesn't do well either. That's the the, the totality of it. Um, so if we have a, a Germany, a Europe that takes its fate into its own hands and says that's going to go it alone, it'll be uh, you know perhaps working against the stated interests of of a U.S. administration. That's that's unnatural, that's unhealthy, that breaks this important transatlantic link that is the, the, the stalwart for the international order. That's, that's our values, our security, um, and when that, that chain, that link is broken, we're all not uh, in the right place. And uh, we felt that in 2003 in the Iraq War. Uh, yes, the U.S. can go it alone. Please, yes, of course we can. But we know that's not naturally where we should be. We need to have as many allies and partners and friends with us in support of uh, U.S. objectives and interests. And when we're working on the opposite direction, we're not going to be successful either. Over the first nine months of the Trump administration, the there's been an understanding, um, a little bit tenuous, but that on the one hand, Germany remains committed to doing more on security and defense, as as the president has uh, has demanded. Um, and by the same token, the United States has not um, tried to upend the transatlantic policy toward Russia um, or take other steps toward Europe that have been that, that would be um, you know destructive. But that's a rather tenuous equilibrium because it depends on um, and is influenced by other things like the Iran nuclear deal. So 
if the Trump administration decides that it wants to get out of that uh, agreement, then that's going to cause enormous problems for Germany. They won't go along with that. Um, it would it would be a, a, a fairly early flashpoint, I think, if uh, if that uh, happens. Um, and so, you know, it's a question in one way of where Washington decides its priorities are. Do we need Europeans with us uh, on things like sanctions on North Korea or trying to build an international consensus on Iran's missile program? Or does Washington want to strike out in a different direction, in which case we probably won't uh, have Europeans at our side pulling in the same direction? Heather, you and I spoke before Brexit. We were very cautious about it. Brexit happened. We spoke before the U.S. election, very cautious about it. Um, this doesn't We're going to seem... stop predicting things. Yeah, That's do... what we're going to stop doing. Right. <laughs> we don't do predictions here. It only makes uh, us no. look silly. Um, although it does, you know, in a parliamentary system, it does seem a little a little easier to pull. I want to... I do want to uh, just finally turn to um, a different kind of election that's happening in Europe, which is um, the Catalan independence referendum. So um, this is almost a podcast in itself to sort of explore the history of how this came up, but very briefly... um, uh, the Catalonia held uh, state elections, elected a government that was uh, uh, that was based on the understanding that they would seek uh, an independence referendum. Now, in the Spanish Constitution, it is not uh, allowable uh, to have uh, an independence uh, movement. So what has been happening over the last several years is that uh, both the central government in Madrid and uh, the state government uh, in its capital of Barcelona have been having a very elaborate dance uh, trying to create uh, a space where Catalonia could express its desire uh, either for greater autonomy or more independence. And having uh, the central government uh, with the constitution and not allowing for it trying to prevent this act from happening. So what we've been seeing over the last couple of years is sort of this this narrowing of options until this most recent election, the the government that was um, uh, elected to hold this referendum, they announced that this independence referendum would be held on October the 1st. What's been happening over the last several days is that the Madrid has been now saying you cannot hold this referendum, and they have been seizing ballots and arresting those in Catalonia that have been uh, working to support uh, the holding of this referendum on October the first. Uh, it is causing now clashes uh, and violence. It is pitting people uh, in Catalonia. Do they support the authorities uh, and the the, mis- the the instructions they're receiving from Madrid, or do they support uh, what the, you know, again, what their local government is telling them they must do? Um, it didn't have to be like this, in my humble view. I think this could have been a, a more national dialogue to give Catalonia greater uh, a voice, greater autonomy. In the UK, you would know this as devolution, where there's just more and more authorities given to it. But because now both sides have hardened, it's now coming to a point of where does this go from here? Uh, the Madrid authorities are determined this won't happen. The Catalan authorities are determined it will happen. Um, Europe has been silent on this. Um, we have been silent uh, on this. It's very, it's a very, very difficult issue economically. Uh, Catalonia is an e- economic driver for Spain, uh, providing 
upwards of 20 percent uh, of some calculations of, of, of economic potential to Spain. So there are economic equities here. But at, at the human level, uh, this is a, it's a tragedy of watching um, the, the Catalonia seek uh, a voice. And I think if the referendum would be held, they would not seek independence. This is the ironic part of it. But by being denied the opportunity to have their voice heard, it's now in some ways pushing people more towards um, seeking that independence. And of course, it's hardening views uh, in, in the other parts of Spain that they should not be allowed to do that. So this is something that we're watching very closely. We hope there's no more violence. We hope the parties can come together and find a way forward, but it's, it's getting more difficult. And that was Heather Connolly bringing us to the end of our show. If you're looking for more from Jeff and Heather, I've provided links to their work in the show's description. I want to add also that this week CSIS released the feature-length documentary The New Barbarianism about the rise in attacks on health workers in war zones and what to do about it. So head on over to our YouTube channel to check that out. Finally, if you have any feedback on the show, email me at cquinn at csis.org or find me on Twitter. That's it for me. Thanks for listening.